I'm 60 and I still struggle with this. I don't completely feel American and I don't completely feel Cuban. I don't want to romanticize that hyphenated existence that has become so common in the U.S. over the last few decades. But there is something. I often say that I identify more with that hyphen than I do with the Cuban or the American side of my identity, of my ethnicity. It is a strange place to be in. How is this idea of the American dream experienced for those who feel a sense of being between worlds? How do the children of those who sought a better life in the U.S. experience this dream in ways different from their parents? Welcome to Complexified, where religion and politics collide with real life. I'm Amanda Henderson. As I trace this myth, the American dream, I've been asking how our personal experiences and the stories we've been told shape our understanding of the past and our vision for the future. The stories we hold are personal and they're also political. Global political conflicts drive people to leave the only home they know, seeking to survive, to find better futures for their children. Today, we have the chance to hear from one of my favorite professors and mentors, Dr. Albert Hernandez. Dr. Hernandez came to the U.S. in his mother's belly in 1962 on one of the last flights out before the Cuban Missile Crisis, and then he was born in the U.S. If you're like me and had a subpar early education in U.S. history, you might not know the significance of the long, important relationship between Cuba and the United States. First, Cuba was one of the earliest Spanish colonies established in the 15th century. In 1898, in the Spanish-American War, the U.S. came to occupy Cuba before Cuba gained independence in 1902. Between 1940 and 1952, Cuba experienced political turmoil and conflict that led to the Cuban Revolution in 1959, establishing communist rule under Fidel Castro. Now, this was in the midst of the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And Cuba was particularly important because of the location just off the coast of Florida. This made the U.S. vulnerable to nuclear threats. This all came to a head in October 1962, when the U.S. had nuclear weapons stationed in Italy and Turkey pointed toward the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union had nuclear weapons in Cuba pointed toward the U.S. It was in this context that Dr. Albert Hernandez's mother boarded one of the last flights from Havana to Miami. I sat down with Dr. Hernandez this fall to learn more about this story and how this has shaped his life and work. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Hernandez. We are grateful to have you on Complexified. You're welcome, Amanda. It's a pleasure to be with you today. What comes to mind when you hear this phrase, 
American dream. At home, it was el sueño americano, the American dream in Spanish. I'm Cuban-American. I'm uh, first generation, firstborn. I can honestly say I was made in Cuba, but born in the United States because <laughs> my mother arrived seven months pregnant with me. And she arrived in the middle of the, just before the Cuban Missile Crisis erupted. And their flight was one of the last flights to leave Havana in October of 1962. Tell a little bit more about this, the ways that this idea of the American dream is complicated in, really, it sounds like in your own body, in your own being and your story. My parents truly were convinced that the U.S. was humanity's best last hope on earth. Abraham Lincoln was really popular in Cuban culture before the revolution. But there are other ways that uh, the American dream was both myth and an ambivalent reality in my family. Very few of my family members came over. And until I was 12 years old, I honestly didn't think we were staying in this country because my parents still had this fantasy, if you will, that the cavalry would one day liberate the island and they would be able to return and so forth. But really, only about five or six immediate family members actually left Cuba in the 1960s in my family, on both sides, on my father's and on my mother's side of the family. And it was only later, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, that other family members actually left Cuba and came to the United States. And there were a couple of family members who were members of the Communist Party, and there were many others who were Batistianos, who supported the uh, Batista regime in pre-Castro Cuba. Can you say a little bit more about what was going on in Cuba for those who are listening who might not be terribly familiar with this important moment in history? I can tell you by way of one of my uncles, who is now deceased, who um, was very, very dissatisfied with Cuba's long history of political oppression, of autocracy, of not respecting the rule of law, of corruption, political and government corruption, and so forth. And he believed that uh, all of the ideals and the values that Fidel Castro and the rebels that were fighting alongside him, he truly believed in those values and in those ideals reducing corruption, expanding all sorts of other social services, reducing the class and, and racism of Cuban society, which was a carryover from Spanish colonialism, that this particular uncle would eventually also live in the Soviet Union for, for nearly eight years. Um, he specialized in agricultural science there in the USSR. And at some point in the late 70s, early 80s, he just realized that communism, or at least Cuban-style communism, Castro-style communism, despite some of the social successes, some of the educational uh, successes, uh, bringing down race, racism and classism, that uh, the regime was basically about expanding the power of the regime and of the Castro family. And he had a major, major falling out. So my family was in some ways torn apart by those who were on the left or the right, by those who supported uh, what, the Batista regime and by those who supported the Castro revolution. And for me, it all of this had an effect on me over the years because, I, no pun intended, I became very centrally focused 
on a set of existential questions and realities of my own, I didn't want to be in either of those two extremes. Because for me, both of those extremes represented profound disillusionment at the same time that both sides represented certain values worth struggling for. And yet, again, for me, it was that sense of disillusionment that I sensed on both sides, or I should say on all sides of that divide. Many Cubans left, began leaving in the late 50s. Many more Cubans left uh, between 1960 and 1962, mainly because they realized that the revolution was not as liberally oriented as they had thought, but rather that the revolution had become or would become a communist revolution. Hmm. Say a little bit more about how that's impacted you of seeing the ways that these two binary extremes are both rooted in disillusionment. Yeah, you know, I'm 60 and I still struggle with this. I don't completely feel American and I don't completely feel Cuban. I don't want to romanticize that hyphenated existence that has become so common in the U.S. over the last few decades. I often say that I identify more with that hyphen than I do with the Cuban or the American side of my identity, of my ethnicity. It is a strange place to be in because it leads me to think about what does it really mean to feel like you belong to a particular culture, to a particular place? And given the fact that my family for so long believed that they would not stay in the United States, and given the fact that my elderly relatives all died lamenting that they could never visit their homeland again, and that in some cases they never saw really, really close family members ever again. There's a certain nostalgia for me when I think about Cuba, but it doesn't quite rise to the level of nostalgia that it does for some of my cousins who are a decade older than me, who were actually born in Cuba. Nonetheless, though, I had, I'm a historian, as you know. I, I specialize primarily in the medieval and early modern period. And there was a really interesting moment in my academic and intellectual formation when I was working on my PhD. I was working on German refugee intellectuals, most of whom were Jewish. And I guess I was fascinated by their experience because of my own experience as a product of what I call a lost world or a broken world or a world ripped apart by, by revolution and ideology. And my mother says to me one day, when I least expected it, Mijo, que lejos fuiste a parar? Which translates loosely as son, how'd you end up so far away from home? I was still in my early 30s, and I was actually bothered that she said that to me. But now that I'm a parent myself of, of adult children, you know, parents have a way of seeing into our minds and our hearts that we ourselves can't even do. And I, and I realized, and I said to her, Mom, I think I get it. Uh, about two or three weeks later, I said, Mom, I think I get it. I'm interested in these German refugee intellectuals who had to flee Germany, many of whom were Jewish. And I said to her, because I myself am the product of a broken world. I myself feel like an exile. Mm. Well, she did not like that one bit. Really? She said, you're not an exile. I made sure you were born in this country and that you were born in a free land. And I can't believe that you would say such a thing that you feel like an exile. And I said, Mom, think about it. I'm not completely Cuban. 
I'm not completely American. So yes, I feel more like that hyphen in between, in between these two polarities of Cuban and American. Well, my mother was not a university intellectual type, so the whole hyphen thing sounded absurd to her. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it's an interesting realization and an interesting conversation and reflection about why it is that we scholars choose some of the subjects that we choose to write about. There's always a personal component. There's always a personal dimension. And for me, I realized that throughout my academic career, I've been interested in societies that fell apart, societies where lots of people, for whatever reasons, had to flee or had to live in hiding. And hiding doesn't mean literally living underground. Hiding can also mean that you show one face, one identity, one mask to the outside world, and a very different one in private, behind closed doors or in personal, intimate family settings. Yeah. Um, how does that differ generationally? And this is something that we've heard from a lot of the folks who have come on and shared is how different generations, especially if parents immigrated and fled for a reason, how do you think about those different ways that your parents experienced the United States and life as an immigrant and the ways that you see it now? For my parents, again, the United States was this idealistic, romanticized, just as they had a lot of nostalgia about the, the, lo que se quedó atrás, the, the, the land they left behind. And my parents were relatively young when they left. There's also a generational divide between my parents' generation and later waves of Cuban immigration to the United States. My father had a saying, what took you so long? When he would ask some of them, what took you so long? You know, ¿Por qué te demoraste tanto? and a lot of that was an indictment of, oh, it took you so long to realize that the revolution had a lot of contradictions from the beginning. So there was always that tension and it wasn't just a tension between newcomers or recent arrivals and my parents' generation, it was a tension also within the family because family members would actually ask each other things like that. As I got older, I, I started realizing a lot of things in my teenage years. I realized that I had grown up in the bubble of the Cuban exile community. I went to exile schools uh, that were schools that existed in Cuba. Uh, there were businesses operating in Miami and in, in Union City, New Jersey, and in New Orleans and in Tampa, Florida. These were places where there were pockets of significant Cuban communities. A grant, the, the largest one being in Miami, Florida, and the second one in the Union City, New Jersey area. And I realized uh, over the years that even though I present as white with very light features, a lot of times when people realize my last name, in the United States, let's say outside of South Florida, outside of the Miami area, outside of Union City, New Jersey, there was always a, huh, Hernandez, hmm, we haven't got any of them here yet. Just That's just one phrase that I remember. I started out my career as a junior high and high school teacher, and at one point I taught English. I actually have a master's in English, 
And, and there were kids who would say, Hernandez, how come you're going to be my English teacher? My other English teachers, their last name is not Hernandez. Wow. And I even had a parent once at parent teacher night who said, what credentials do you have to be an English teacher, Mr. Hernandez? And, uh, yeah, I was in my early yeah. to mid twenties and things like that. You're like, whoa, yeah. you know, instant reminder that even though I may look a certain way and speak a certain way and sound a certain way, my name betrays a certain ethnicity. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, that hyphen, that's that lack of belonging. Yeah. Fully yeah. So I'll never forget that, you know? Mm -hmm. And over the years, I mean, th there are similar comments that emerge the educational world as, as much as it likes to talk about diversity and inclusivity and, and communal belonging. It's still a, a work in progress in order to get to, to a full measure of inclusivity. <laughs> Absolutely. How did your parents balance that nostalgia with those kinds of experiences? Did they have those experiences of being discriminated against or realizing that this idea that they hoped for wasn't exactly what they thought it was going to be? They did. They did. My parents over the years, uh, my parents got divorced when I was still a child and they both remarried and my mother and my stepfather, my father and my stepmother, they had businesses and they would occasionally run into experiences of discrimination, of prejudice. But they always managed to stay very much within the confines of the Cuban exile community in Miami, Florida, or of the Cuban exile community in Union City, New Jersey. And I think that created a buffer or a shield from some of those more disturbing experiences of, of being reminded, oh, you're not one of us. You don't sound like an American. Neither of them ever completely mastered the English language, but they, they mastered it enough to get by for their business work. But education was big for them. They wanted all of us to be educated, to go to school, to not have to experience what they experienced. Their experiences at the beginning, though, were, were much more difficult than their experiences later on when I was, let's say, in my late teens and 20s. They would tell really difficult stories about arriving in the United States in the 1960s. My mother talked about how she couldn't find an apartment to rent in Miami in the fall of 62 because there was a sort of anti-Cuban sentiment in South Florida due to the Cuban Missile Crisis. My mother talked about, as a woman who presented as white, being able to sit anywhere on the bus that she wanted to, and blacks being asked to sit at the back of the bus or blacks being denied service in some of the restaurants and coffee shops in South Florida. So my parents had their own culture shock when they arrived, and my father didn't come over right away. He actually came over when I was about six, let's say almost eight months old. And he actually escaped on a Red Cross ship that was evacuating some of the remaining wounded or prisoners from the Bay of Pigs fiasco a few years earlier. And my father tells stories about his own culture shock when he arrived in the United States, just as my mother had her own stories to tell. But ironically, despite all of that and the challenges that they experienced over the next decades, 
they by and large really did buy into the mythology of the American dream, ardently anti-communist. As someone who embodies this hyphenatedness and also is a scholar, how do you respond to the tension between generations who say, you young Americans who critique America don't realize how good you've got it, that you don't realize what we fled, what we went through to get here, compared to young Americans who say this land was built on the theft of indigenous land and genocide and slavery and who feel very jaded by this idea of America in the American dream. How do you hold these two extreme versions of how we see ourselves? Well, I've been very critical in my teaching and in my work and in my publications over the years about U.S. colonialism, U.S. imperialism. My parents weren't happy about that. Uh, about your critique about of it. About my critique of it and also of my work with the Muslim community in the mm. post-9-11 period. But when I came to ILIF in 2001, as a fairly young academic, <laughs> I was in my late 30s, I met Vincent Harding for the first time in my career. I knew of his work as a historian of, uh, of the black struggle for freedom in America. And despite all that he knew and all that he had experienced as a colleague and personal friend of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, he never gave up hope. He never gave up, and hope is a misleading word, he never gave up on his civil rights activism and, and, and the struggle for justice. And he would often say to me that uh, America was a work in progress. He quoted other black intellectuals who spoke about America will be, or America is a country that does not yet exist. And that has been comforting for me over the years when I see other members of my family who are not as white as I am struggle with American racism, American classism, gender oppression, the anti-LGBTQIA plus factions and sentiments in this country. And for me, because of my work on the post 9-11 period and, and medieval Islam, Islamophobia is, is another so that's always stayed with me now for more than 20 years, uh, thanks to Vincent Harding's mentoring and influence on me and, and the influence of his work and his writings. You know, America, he, he often asked us to call him Uncle Vincent. Uh, I rarely did because I respected him so much that I felt uncomfortable doing that. Yeah. But let's just say <laughs> Uncle Vincent uh -huh. would often say, I am a citizen of a country that does not yet exist, but I believe that America will be. And I would say to, as I say to my children, I would say to younger generations, you know, don't, don't lose sight of the fact that democracy is a work in progress and it needs eternal vigilance and civic engagement and civic duty and not the nihilism and the disillusionment that can lead us to become even more isolated and disconnected from the political and, and civic processes that, that we need to be involved in. As we start to learn more about our past and take a little bit more honest, uh, critical approach, how does that shape 
how we see ourselves and how we see the future. Not that it necessarily has to make us pessimistic, but it definitely gives you a different lens of this country. Yeah. And maybe it's not so much about pessimism, Amanda, or nihilism, but maybe it's about how can we all individually and collectively maybe bring a more nuanced, a more complexified, no pun intended. There we go. Good plug. <laughs> um, sense of existential reality to this thing we call the American dream or the promise of America. Because in my own family's case, it was Spanish colonialism that set in motion patterns of relating to the other, unexamined assumptions about power and difference and whiteness that came with Spanish colonialism to Cuba. I mean, Cuba was the Spanish Empire's base of operations for centuries, from which to spread into South America, Central America, and into the New Mexico territories, and of course, into the state of Florida. I'm talking way back in the 1500s, the 1600s, and the 1700s. And those legacies of racializations, of class, of gender oppression, of homophobia, and by extension of Islamophobia, they affected the collective and individual mentality of pre-Castro Cuba in ways that I noticed very much. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother, Maria, was born a subject of the Spanish Empire. And she would tell horrible stories about Spanish atrocities in, uh, up until the late 1800s. And for many Cubans of her generation, there was a, an ambivalent feeling already when they thought about the relationship between post-1902 Cuba and the United States, because the United States had been meddling in Cuba for, for a very, very long time before 1959, before the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. And my grandmother always talked about how the Spaniards and the Americans used Cuba as a pawn in a regional and global game. And that's always stayed with me. It's one of the reasons that I also eventually decided to specialize in the history of medieval and of early modern Spain. I was just fascinated with, with that ambivalence that came to me from my own family story, but also the ambivalence that many of my older relatives, all of whom are now deceased, had with regards to, to the United States. And again, the unexamined assumptions that are inherent in the American dream, just as there were many unexamined assumptions inherent in the vision of Spanish colonial identity, which can't be separated also from the religious dimensions of that era. You know, these are, these are things that I never forgot. And the racialization in Cuba is very much an ongoing product. I mean, it still exists, even in, in Cuba today. But it was very much a product of the impact of the racialization policies and ideologies of Spanish colonialism. This is wonderful. And one of the things that I think is so important and I hope that we're continuing to develop is by taking a look at those histories, both in our own stories and families and the ways that we carry them and the ways that we have heard them and received them 
how does having that more nuanced understanding and thoughtfulness about the histories that we were handed, how does that change the way you live today? It's mm. a big question. It is a very big question, <laughs> but be, since I teach yes. about the legacies of the Spanish Empire, mm-hmm. I've become more and more aware than ever before of how these traumas, these, let's call it self-loathing, the self-loathing that comes from colonialism is not something that is just there in the dead past of 500 years ago, 300 years ago, 200 years ago, those things have a cross-generational impact that people can carry with them for generations and generations and generations. When I travel, because I present physically as white, as a white Latinx male, when I travel in places, let's say, south of the border, if I may use that metaphor, or even in Spain, or even when I traveled to southern Colorado and northern New Mexico a few years back to do some field research, I was always amazed at comments that were made about me physically. You know, comments like, wow, you're so white. You must be so proud of your ancestors that they went out of their way not to intermarry with the slaves or with the Indians. Seriously, I have been told that in in varying Mm -hmm. different ways, whether I'm in the Caribbean, whether I'm in Spain, whether I'm in New Mexico or Southern Colorado, and sometimes I'm told these things by people of color. And for me, it's an example of the persistence of that colonial legacy and of the racialization of those legacies. You know, these are not just sentences and facts in a history book. People have really lived this. And in many ways, it's become encrypted in their hearts and minds, just as it's encrypted and projected onto their bodies. So again, for me as a scholar and as a Cuban-American, I hate to sound despondent, but if it took a few centuries to, <laughs> to lay the foundations for all of this kind of self-loathing and what we project onto the other or the unexamined assumptions that we put upon people who are different from us, it may take a few centuries to undo it. I know that that may lead some people to more nihilism or a sense of despair, but the work goes on and the work continues, and it's important work in my opinion. Mm, wonderful. Self-awareness. Yeah, self-awareness. You know? and, and viewing this as long-haul work. We are a part of a long haul story and choosing to live into that story in ways that are moving us toward greater liberation and freedom is long haul commitment. Yeah. And you know, Amanda, as I hear you speaking, I, I think of something else too. Historical change is a very, very slow process. And if historical change involves socio political change, It's a slow process. It's easier for individuals to change than it is for societies to change. That's what my study of history and my teaching for many, many years as a historian has shown me. I'm also reminded of Karl Marx, who couldn't believe 
in the mid-1800s at the French Revolution, after all of its promises of liberty, fraternity, equality, granted also a very violent and bloody revolution, Karl Marx couldn't believe that the French Revolution culminated in another hereditary national monarchy, that time under the Napoleonic dynasty. And he penned this famous, history repeats itself twice. The first time is tragedy, the second time is farce. Mm. And for me, that's not a statement of despair. For me, that's uh, an existential window, a moral window, maybe even a metaphysical one, into how difficult it is for societies to actually change. But then it doesn't mean we abandon the work either. The work of social change, the work of justice, the work of peace. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. I know we're in this conversation for your audience, but you've also helped me rethink some of these very rich and yet very difficult memories and experiences from my Mm -hmm. family's own story. Yeah. Wonderful. I'm glad. Thank you. So thank you. Pleasure to be with you today. Yes, you too. Thank you. Before we close, I want to share another poem from Mariela Saavedra Carquin. You can find a link to Mariela's beautiful poetry book, Maps You Can't Make, and her full bio in the show notes. this is I Swear There Was a River. If I pick one up, bit by bit, maybe I could start to make sense of the whole, of the things we were supposed to do, of the plans we had made. I don't know if anything can be put back together. When we came, we got off and walked down and somehow made a life and we walked and we walked. Then somewhere along the way, we decided to stay because place grounds you and lives are formed. And somehow you find you can't leave this new place you try calling home, but the language isn't yours and the people are not yours. And then your sense of yours becomes fragmented. I swear it made sense somewhere, sometime. At least that's what they told me when they narrated their lives before coming, how they had known what to do. But then you come and there isn't the river that guides you. My father was confident when he went back that he would find his way, told the cab driver to make a right. Make a left, make another left. I swear that's where my home is. But he went in circles and then he went in zigs and zags until sharp corners injured my father. And eventually he got out of the car to make sense of things. And that's when he saw that time just keeps going. So he got back in the car and told the driver, I don't know where the river is. And the driver told him the river dried up and my father fell. Except he didn't fall. But somewhere in his mind, something fell and broke in pieces and he feigned putting them in a puzzle box to hold. While he told the driver, can you help me? Can you tell me where I live? And the driver said, of course, and led the way. And my father saw that home wasn't back where he came from, whatever that means, as if you can come from one place and hold that place, because daddy forgot, except he didn't forget. It was a river that dried up. It was a river that dried up. It was a river that dried up. In our next episode, the final of our series before we take a break before the holidays, Dr. Christina Lazardi-Hodgby, a professor at Isla School of Theology, shares her family story as the child of Puerto Rican and Italian immigrants. 
Dr. Lazardi Hajbi sheds light on the hoops one must jump through to gain access to the American dream. You don't want to miss it. Thanks again for joining. Check out our website at complexified.org and sign up for our monthly newsletter to continue the conversation. If anything inspired you or sparked your curiosity, please share this with a friend. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Complexified comes to you from the Institute for Religion, Politics, and Culture at Iliff School of Theology. Working hard behind the scenes is our student intern, Josh Perez. Thanks to our sound engineer, Jasmine Hunjan, and the team at Podcast Allies. I'm Amanda Henderson.